Now I'm here. And now I'm here. And now you're here, dear listener. We can begin. So welcome to episode 12 of the Mainframe Performance Topics podcast. We are Marna Wally from ZOS Development in Poughkeepsie, New York. And Martin Packer from somewhere in the UK. I love that every time you come up with something different. Next episode, you're going to go first, and then I get to have the smart comment at the end. We'll see how well that one works. <laughs> so where have you been lately? Well, this is quick. Nowhere. We just got our last episode out uh, relatively recently, so nowhere. Me neither. So at this point in the podcast, Martin, you need to explain what the title of the episode is. Baker's Dozen. Well, it's the 13th episode. So you think you have to explain what a baker's dozen is, probably especially to Americans, right? And you think I don't. No, I think Americans know what a baker's dozen is, so I guess I win. But what's your prize? Uh, Prizes that we move along. And now it's time for our mainframe topic. So what is it, Marna? Well, it's one item, but it consists of multiple parts. It's GRS goodies. So the part one that I wanted to talk about is really a GRS oldie one. It's APAR OA42221. And how far back does that one go? It's really old. Like I said, it's ZOS release 13. And a lot of people missed this, I think. Uh, I was in a hold action, but of course you might have missed it. It was dug in the books, which of course you might have missed. But it's the ability to have GRS have the ability to write its own SMF record, record 87, subtype 1. And that record will have the identity of issuers of global generic Q-scans. So, one, one second. Some people might not know what a generic Q-scan is. So, so, what is it for our readers, or rather our listeners? Okay. Yeah, so a global generic Q-scan technically is a GQ-scan user when scope equals systems are all, hexis equals yes or is not specified, and either the Q-name or the R-name are not specific. But it also includes a second case also, and that's for ISG query, when scope equals systems or any, and you're gathering from the sysplex, and either the Q name and or the R name are not specific as well. So that's technically what a generic global Q scan is. That sounds quite expensive. Yes, it is. Um, And that's why you might want to know who's doing it. So these users that are doing this might have caused an increase in CPU and also an increase in private storage. So what we've done and what I've learned about is I'm going to call that the monitoring capability. So now you can have the additional monitoring capability in SMF87 subtype 1 for these type of Q scans. And you can turn it on or off in the GRS CNF ParmLive member monitor, which is yes or no. Of course, it's turned off by default and you can change that dynamically. So far, so good. So is there anything else you want to say about this APAR? Not specifically, not in this particular APAR, but what we've done is build upon the capability in this APAR in a future release, which is going to be in another part of this function that I wanted to talk about. So something to think about here is the old filtering capability, which you had, which was on NQDQs, which was program ISG audit. That is not applicable into this new SMF87 subtype 1 generic global Q scan information. So you still got to use that old ISG audit method, which is rather cumbersome, right? You've got to assemble link edited into a load module, and then you've got to have a myriad of modify commands in order to control it. So the ISG audit really doesn't have any effect, let's say, on SMF87 subtype 1 at this particular point in time. So why would you want to filter the global generic Q scans anyway? 
Well, you know, you might want to not see them all, or you might just want to look for somebody in particular that's using it. So really, you know, you might get some of this information that's too much and you, you do want to filter it. But alas, you know, not yet. You don't have the filtering capability for these uh, global generic Q scans at this time. All right, so that brings us into the second part of this GRS goodie, which actually is composed of two subparts now. And this happens in GRS uh, ZOS 2.2. So for the first part of our second subpart, we've got more subtypes. We've got SMF87 subtype 2. Now this one is for NQs and DQs, which is what we had the ability to already monitor before. So let's just recap here. We have SMF87 subtype 1 for global generic Q scans. And now in 2.2, we have subtype 2 for NQDQs. Ah, new SMF records for both. That sounds like something I might actually take a strong interest in. And I would expect this to be quite a lot of data, really. So it would be quite a nice idea to take advantage of the higher bandwidth and manageability of SMF log streams. Oh, absolutely and naturally. And that's one of the advantages. And I suspect one of the reasons why GRS had allowed this is because they can take advantage of the SMF infrastructure by using SMF records. Okay, so that was SMF 87 subtype 1 and 2, which came in ZOS 2.2. But now we'll get to the second part of our second part. And this is what I think is the most beautiful thing we've got is a brand new Parm Live member called GRS Mon. And this will allow us to do what I'm calling fake filtering capability. And this is where I can filter on both of these types of data, both the NQDQs and the generic global Q scans. And GRS Mon is the new ParmLab member that allows us to do that. Alas, though, it is system specific and you can only have one of them in a system uh, specified on your IHSS member. So despite that last little bit, this all sounds like a big advance. So how do I set all of this up so I can use it? Okay, so to set it up, you really need to use the two pieces together. The APAR OA42221, which allowed us to have the monitoring capability so that GRS could write SMF records. Okay, so that you go put in GRS CNF PARM Live Member Monitor, yes. You know, again, override the default, which is off. Turn the monitoring on, which is called monitor, confusingly enough. And that will allow GRS to write the SMF records. Of course, you've got to collect the SMF records. Then you go in and you set up a brand new GRS Mon Parm Live member. There's a sample to do that in SampLive if you'd like that you can model after. And again, like I said, there's no IEA sys statement to point to the GRS Mon Parm Live member. So you have to start it yourself with a set GRS space GRS mon equals XX, uh, whatever you have selected Parm line member. And also you, of course, you need the right access in the Opera Commands profile to do that as well. So what's the first thing you'd recommend for monitoring and filtering? Okay, first time, this is an easy one. Um, I can strongly recommend this if you wanna try this out on a very easy item. And I would strongly recommend that you try it for filtering on auth Q level two in GRS mon. Now, why would I say that? It's an easy thing to set up, but I also want everybody to do it because this was a recommended migration action that I mentioned back in ZOS release 13, and it was requiring some work in order to do, so I don't think a lot of people actually did it. But now that we've got rid of the old ISG audit method of using it, actually that's still around, but I don't think anybody really wanted to use it, we've got the simple Parm Live member GRS mon where you can filter on those off-queue level twos, and then that helps to identify 
or prevent denial of service attacks. So this is a great easy way to start it off. Yeah, it sounds like it's a no-brainer that you would do it, particularly with the dreaded letters DOS involved. Yeah, it's a very simple one to try out, and it can make me happy because it means accomplishing a par or a, sorry a migration action that was from an old one from ZOS Release 13 that I think people missed. So you've talked about a lot of parts here. Could you just recap, summarize them? Of course. I did talk a lot about parts, which is actually making me tongue-tied because I talked about so much. But I created a matrix, and here it is. And the matrix is so valuable because it took me an awful lot of research within the books to put this together and discussing with the GRS component guy. And so I've got this matrix put together. And so pretty much, let's step through it. There was a very old way prior to ZOS release 13 without OA42221 where you could only monitor NQD queues and the filtering capability was quite cumbersome with an old ISG audit assembler method that you could do it. Enters OA42221 on release 13 where you had the new ability to cut SMF87 subtype 1 for the global generic queue scans and yet you didn't have additional filtering capability and then added on to that with ZOS 2.2, we've now got SMF87 subtype 2 for NQD queues, which builds on what we had before for the global generic queue scans for subtype 1. And we've got finally the most beautiful Parm Live member, maybe in 2.2, uh, which is GRS Mon that allows you to avoid and not have to use the old ISG audit assembler program anymore. And that will that filtering capability will apply to both generic uh, global Q scans and also NQD queues. And with that latest bit, I don't have to use that old ISG audit filtering method anymore. You bet. Good riddance. So now it's time for Martin's performance topic, and this one is on structural analysis. So this is about shooting a very large number of coupling facility structures. All right, so very large number, what would that mean? How many? Uh, well, the case I'm talking about is, is a few hundred structures. Wow, gosh, a few hundred. Um, what about if you've got far fewer than a hundred? Right, and most customers have far fewer, so the answer is the approach I'm going to outline actually does scale down to far fewer structures. Yeah, so right away I'm thinking, if you're going to be talking about a large number of structures, does that mean that the CFCC or the Coupling Facility Control Code, can it scale that far? Well, I spoke to Dave Sermon in development, and he assured me it can scale perfectly well to many hundreds of structures, but he did give the usual health warning about having coupling facilities that are overly busy and all that sort of thing. Same as usual. So, okay, why do we care about CF structure performance in the first place then? Well, really two reasons. One is because coupling facility structure, or rather requests to structure, performance can determine application performance, at least in a semi-detached manner. The other one is that with synchronous coupling facility requests at least, if the structure takes longer to respond, then the coupled CPU, while ZOS spins, its engine increases, so the coupled CPU cost can go up. So there's two reasons, really, why we care about coupling facility structure performance. Well, we care, which I know, in your case, means that you probably got involved in a customer situation, and that's how come you care, right? Yeah, yes, I did, and, and that was what got me sensitized to how to think about very large numbers of coupling facility structures. All right, so back to the main topic then. How do you deal with these large number of structures? Well, you think of a metric. 
and you sort all the structures by that metric descending and then you pick the top few. I guess this is what we'd call a top listing approach. All right, that sounds easy and simple. So what, what's hard about it? Shh, you'll give the game away if you say things like simple. Uh, but yes, it is in fact standard problem decomposition and the hard thing would be, I guess, the metrics. All right, so how do you do it? Well, first we're gonna to have to talk about different kinds of structures and the kinds of metrics that attach to each of those. Now, a while back I wrote a post called Restructuring. Gosh, you and your puns. This is another one of your puns on structure, right? I'm afraid so. It's a gift that keeps on giving. But in that post, <laughs> to be serious for one moment, I advocated treating different kinds of structures differently based on their behaviors and merits. All right, so different kinds of structures. I'd like to start with the lock structures then. A very wise choice there. So the most important metric for these is something called false contentions and secondarily a metric called XES contentions which are less bad than false contentions. Let's say that up front. So false contentions are basically to do with when XES, which is a component of ZOS that controls coupling facility interactions, thinks there's a contention for a lock structure when really there isn't one and has to do some work to discover there isn't one. Okay, so what do you do about the false contentions? Well, because they're bad enough to cause extra work, you can do something very simple, and it's worth doing it, which is, generally speaking, to resize the structure bigger. Okay, so that was lock structures. I'm thinking now about cache structures. Are they a horse of a different color? Yeah, yes, they are. So they, they are set up in a completely different way. You interact with them in a different way if you're an application. And for those, we have all sorts of metrics. So just to rattle off a few of them, we have directory entry reclaims, we have cross-invalidations, we have cast-outs, we have data element reclaims, different metrics. Wow, so you've got a completely different set of metrics. You performance people have such fun in your lives. <laughs> yes, yes, we afraid so. We like our, like our metrics, and here's a whole bunch more. Uh, and by the way, it's no accident that both the lock and cache structures that we're talking about now are highly relevant to DB2, and that's relevant to the, the story, as you'll see shortly. So you had talked about that you got involved with the customer and that they had so many structures. So how did the customer get so many of these structures? That's a good architectural question. And actually here, the names and the types of structures are a clue to how we got to so many structures. All right, keep on. Why? <laughs> so DB2 data sharing groups have structure names that are easily recognizable and types. So for example, every data sharing group has a structure whose name ends in underscore lock one. Now that is demonstrably the DB2 RLM lock structure for that data sharing group. And by the way, the data sharing group name typically is what leads the structure name. Similarly, for a data sharing group, the group buffer pools also have distinctive names and they end in GBP something and that something is the group buffer pool number or name. So you can recognize very readily handfuls of structures that relate to a given data sharing group. All right, so you just talked about DB2. Why are you only talking about DB2? Well, in this case and in many other cases, almost all the structures are for DB2 data sharing. Yes, you do get different kinds of structures, like you get XCF structures, and you might have a checkpoint structure, and you might have a RACF structure, actually generally two RACF structures. 
but those are small numbers of structures compared to the db2 data sharing case and of course this list is not exhaustive so other things like vsam rls have their own setup but it's not that there are many structures per data sharing group at least not in this case and generally that's true it's rather that in the case i was dealing with there were literally dozens of db2 data sharing groups gosh this this does sound like a complex shop Yes, I'm actually very impressed. Uh, it's a very large shop indeed, and it's impressive how they're managing this very large shop. But there is actually a bit of a clue as to how in the in the structure names. So how are they doing that? Tell us the clue. Well, the clue is that there were two particular group buffer pool numbers that stuck out in terms of there being lots and lots of structures with that ending, repeated obviously across the data sharing groups. So that commonality suggests cloning. So, you know, if buffer pool X is typically the most active one by whatever metric uh, across lots of data sharing groups, well, it probably got that way across them all because they were set up the same way. So there is some hint here that maybe we've got some form of cloning going on. But, you know, even with cloning, it's got to be a bit of a bear to manage. But on the other hand, you know, hand-tuning several hundred structures would really be a non-starter for most people. You'd take forever to size, place, and tune and manage several hundred structures one at a time. Yeah, that does sound like a lot of manual work, and I doesn't sound particularly appealing to me, but, but what about one size fits all? Would, would that work also? Well, I think that's what a lot of people would head towards, but actually the problem with one size fits all particularly if workloads vary across the data sharing groups, is, is really one size never fits at all well. It's kind of a trade-off, actually. Yeah, it does sound like a trade-off. So, Martin, what did we learn? Ah, a Cohen Brothers reference. So, what we've learned, I hope, is when tuning many, many coupling facility structures, a top-down list of metric values works particularly well. And actually, I would say, as I said towards the beginning, that would work quite well even with smaller numbers of structures, maybe a, a few tens or, or, or so. So top list is a good idea. And if you want to do top listing, then there are plenty of useful metrics to do this with. So there's lots of fun and games to be had in parallel sysplex tuning down at the structure level, especially with a shop this large. So Martin... This is time for our topics topic. We have a topic that is called recording and editing processing that we use for this podcast ourselves. This is really your specialty. So why don't you start and talk more about this one? Okay, so we're going to split this into two parts, recording and editing. So let's start with recording. So the first thing is equipment, which we've invested a little bit of money in, but not a huge amount here. So let's talk about headphones first, Marna. I'm just using some very cheap headphones, but it's actually really quite important to have some headphones for the simple reason that we get feedback from the other channel if we don't do that, which kind of damages things. Yeah, I totally agree. Yeah, I've I've got cheap headphones as well. And if you don't have them, you get an echoing horrible problem. So yeah. So, so actually headphones are also essential for the editing process, but we'll come back to that later. So for microphones, I've got a couple of microphones. I've got one that was, I think, $60 and another one that was about $50. Now, the $60 one is one that sits on my desk uh, and it's pretty decent. And the $50 one is just one that stays in my bag. Um, so if I want to record somebody on the road, 
not that I've really done that yet, uh, then, then I have some equipment for that. I've got on my desk a really old and very cheap, I don't even know how much it was, Logic Tech speaker. And that's all I use. I remember in the last episode, I made a mistake and didn't turn on the Logitech speaker. So I think I went through my ThinkPad microphone and that didn't turn out so well. So I don't make that mistake again. And I also made a mistake once actually of recording some stuff with no headphones on at all. And that, that that's a complimentary problem to the one you just mentioned. So you have to t- take a little bit of care on this. Uh, and then... Actually, in the software side, we're doing this with Skype, and we each have our own call recorder. Now, you're on Windows, and I'm on Mac, so they're different call recorders. Yeah, on Windows, I use a nice free one called iFree Skype Recorder, which is really nice. It records everything. I can set it up to record every Skype session I do, and then I can save that file and send it to you so that you can do the editing. And I have a very nice call recorder, actually. Um, And the people who make it actually also make a... um, FaceTime recorder, not that I've ever done that, but FaceTime being another way of of doing internet telephony. So that's the equipment we use. Let's talk about the process a little bit. Yeah, so we we do record the podcast in chunks, as you might be able to tell, is we do each of the topics in a chunk, and then we do the front part and then the back part also in a chunk, and then we have chunks to put together. And in our sessions, when we have uh, Skype recording, sometimes we might do several of these chunks in a session. We tend to keep the chunks into separate files, though. And of course, scheduling and our meetings are ad hoc. It's when both Martin and I have time to do it. Yeah, and we both have busy working lives, so that's why it's a bit chaotic in terms of when we actually get stuff put together. And I think one of the things to say is when we record, we generally don't do multiple takes. We occasionally do, but generally speaking, it's one take for something. As you can probably tell, because I sometimes get very tongue-tied and I just keep on going. So I don't want (laughs) to thrust it on you to have to do editing of my horrible tongue-tiedness. So we we don't do multiple takes usually. And one of the things I've noticed while I'm editing is that I speak at variable speed, which is a little strange. It's a bit like the tape stretching and then contracting again. So uh, let's talk about editing now. So I'm the one who does the editing and I'm using a tool called Audacity, which is available on Linux and on Windows and also on the Mac where I'm doing my editing these days. So one of the things we've learnt is that we have to both record and that way I can take a track that hasn't been over the internet from Mana and the track that hasn't been over the internet from me and put them together. So, Marna, you're on the right, aren't you? Yes, I'm in your right ear. And I'm on the left. Yep. And sometimes we have guests, of course. And so when we have a guest, we have more than two tracks then. Yes. Now, I'm a little bit into the stereo thing. So we tend to put them in the middle, unless it's just me interviewing somebody or it's just you interviewing somebody. What I think will be really interesting, actually, is when we get to the point, and we haven't had this yet, where we've had two guests in the same conversation. And I think we can do that. We would just place them half left, half right, or something like that, or have some fun with the stereo. (laughs) Yeah, you'll have fun with that, and I'll just try to organize to try to get two guests on to talk about one topic. (laughs) That's going to be kind of fun. So when we've done the recording and I've fired everything up in Audacity, then I go through a process of cleanup. And that's really to get rid of as much noise as possible, although it, you know, we're not in a pristine recording environment, so that, that, that's a little difficult sometimes. The most difficult thing, actually, is if there's a noise from the end where somebody's actually speaking as opposed to the other end where I can clean it out completely. So I do, after I've done the cleanup, I do a little bit of editing 
for flow mostly. I'm not really trying to achieve perfection with this. I'm not trying to change the message. And one of the things I'm not trying to do is to take all the humanity out. So I'd like to leave a little bit, little bit of humanity in. So a few flubs, a few ums, a few errs, you know, my verbal pitch speaking, that's that sort of thing, because uh, I think that helps with what we're trying to do here. But also, well, yeah, Martin, something else that you do that I really like, and you have kind of worked in this area a lot, is you've inserted a lot of sound effects, too. I really have enjoyed you finding them and actually doing inserting them and actually putting a structure to our podcast so that people know when sections are moving and when to expect what. And, and yes, and, and that's, that has been a lot of fun. And there's actually a nefarious purpose in doing that. So... If we're recording in chunks, not necessarily under the same conditions each time for an episode, it kind of masks, to some extent, I hope, the differences in level and quality. So it's not um, that we go from something very loud suddenly to something not so loud. And by the way, differences in loudness, we can do something about anyway. So, so we try and get these things reasonably professionally done, but not totally. Yeah. So, I mean, you've, you, you're excellent at the re- do, helping us do the recording. Thank you. And the editing, of course, because that's really all you. And I think the, the main idea is that we're evolving as we go. I don't even want to listen to episode zero and how painful it might have been at this point. But I think we're getting better and we're learning as our, we go. You know, I think we probably should listen to episode zero again. Because remember, we called it Sick Parvis Magna and Greatness from Small Beginnings. Well, never mind the greatness bit, but the beginnings were a bit small. Uh, and actually, quite a lot of people, it seems, are listening listening from episode zero onwards quite how far they go we don't quite track that but at least people are still listening to episode zero so so you know it would be lovely to be in professional from the get-go we'll get there one day i hope yeah we will but you know like you said we have a day job too so this is not our professional job here we do it for fun and we're evolving in, in in some creative ways but also we're learning stuff from the technical difficulties we sometimes encounter so that's really the process of recording and editing. So tiny bit of behind the scenes there. So now it's time for our customer requirements spot. So Martin, I've selected two customer requirements for today relating to coupling facilities since that was the performance topic. The first one uh, is a customer requirement that we received, and it's 76875 and also 75766. The title of it is Migration Check for CF Structure Sizes at Risk Due to Impending New Levels of CFCC. So that's quite an interesting one because that's one way of, of cracking it, you know, actually having a health check. The other way is to encourage people to look at their performance data in the way I described in the performance topic. I think this is actually quite a good one, though, because at least you're doing something if you're running the health check. And my guess is people run health checks on a fairly regular basis, right? Yeah, they do. And if they don't, they should. And if they don't, it's their own fault. So I kind of like the idea for this one. Um, It does say migration check, but... You know, and I like the surfacing of it in a health checker structure, but really I think the information is what we really need to get after, and that when you upgrade from one CFCC level to another, we really should be giving you some estimation or projection of the size that the structures you might need that to increase. I think that's right, and actually uh, expecting RMF to be able to predict what the new structure size would be for some 
unspecified CFCC level is a bit much. So actually, this is not an unreasonable one. Yeah, I, I, I do like this. Let's, let's keep an eye on this and see where this one goes. The second requirement that we had is a very simple one. It's number 7531. It's called Reduce the Complexity of Coupling Facility Specifications. Now, even though the lofty description is there, in the, if you look a little bit more at the specifics, it pretty much is just asking for the ability to concatenate multiple couple XX members in ParmLib so that you can separate both your sysplex-wide information in one member as well as system-specific data in another and then concatenate those two together. So when we say multiple, I think we probably mostly mean two, though no doubt somebody can dream up a scenario where we mean more than two. I, I end up you know, as complete outsiders of development thinking, how hard can this be? So hopefully not hard at all. Yeah. I don't know. As with these kind of things, I usually guess that if it was easy, it would have been done right away. But uh, now that we need it, it's making its way up, I guess, in the requirements list, if hopefully to the point where it will be done someday. So it's time to talk about the places we think we're going in the near future. So actually, I am going somewhere. I am enjoying the hostility or maybe hospitality of Chicago O'Hare sometime soon. <laughs> What you mean to say is you're going to Chicago for pizza, and then as a side project, you've got to go talk to customers as well, right? You've got to do something to get earn the right for pizza. Yeah, especially the best in the world. And I know that's controversial, but I'll stand by it. Uh, for me, same as always. I'm going to Orlando, IBM Systems Technical University, May 22nd through 26th. This sounds like an advert, you know. Well, I don't know. It, it might be. I've got some interesting things that I'll be talking about. I hope so. Hope to see people there. It would be the only kind of advert we'll take in this podcast. So we welcome feedback as always, however you want to give it to us. So let's talk about some blogging in the section called On the Blog. What do you got, Martin? Well, I've been a bit less productive, perhaps, although I have a few ideas up my sleeves of things to talk about. So I've got one blog post out called A Few of My Favorite Things which is uh, my practical experience in using some of the new JCL enhancements in ZOS 2.1 and actually one that I didn't realize was there from a few releases before. I know it's funny you were talking about these new enhancements and I was like, oh, Martin, those things are so old. It was kind of funny when you said that. I guess it's new to you if you've never noticed it or you've never used it. So enjoy something new, in other words. Well, you see, I do read the announcements uh, and I read the slides and all that, but then you tend to forget about the stuff until you actually come to use it. So, yes, we, we went to 2.1 on our system the other day and almost immediately I found some use cases for this. So, so that, that's what that post's about. And you've got one. Yes, I do, finally. I've been working on this uh, blog post for... For a couple of weeks now and I finally was able to herd cats enough together and get some time to finish it and so the title of my blog post is GDG to GDGE conversions I don't have such snazzy titles as as you always come up with and that's some uh, additional thoughts that I had on the conversions to GDGEs that I did some tests on talked to Mr. Catalog talked to customer really cool stuff so read that blog post if you're interested in using GDGEs which came in the two two release by the way if you're going to talk about herding cats you do realize it's quite simple they take the ablative uh explain that well they don't move towards you when you herd them they go gurcha and and keep moving away from you so you can herd them <laughs> you just have to know the technique yeah yeah Okay, I guess I'd have multiple people to kind of herd them in one direction. So how to contact us? You can find me on Twitter at mwally or you can email me at mwally 
at us.ibm.com. And I'm Martin Packer on Twitter and martin underscore packer at uk.ibm.com for email. So it goes. <laughs>